Section 26 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Caesar, Part 2. But it was, after all, on politics that Caesar threw away the greater part of his money. He had worked through all his private fortune before he had reached the age of twenty-four. When he entered on his quaestorship, he was already thirteen hundred talents in debt, and it was not until ten years after that he was in a position to pay off what he owed. By that time he had exhausted other lenders, and was depending on the inexhaustible purse of Crassus alone. The millionaire had picked him out from among all the other young demagogues of Rome, and had been so much struck with his ready ability and boundless self-confidence that he was prepared in return for political services to finance him to any extent. The greater part of the money which Caesar ran through was lavished on the most useless and extravagant bribes to the multitude. He was determined to surpass all who had ever lived before him in self-advertisement. When he held the idolship, three hundred and twenty pairs of gladiators died for the amusement of the mob. He spent countless sums in theatrical exhibitions, processions, and entertainments of the public at free dinners, which cast into the shade even Crassus's great open-air banquets of B.C. 70. The more useless and extravagant was his outlay, the better the urban multitude was pleased. After this, one begins to understand the freaks of Caligula and other descendants of the Caesarian family. But the wild extravagance caught the popular eye, and was much more admired than the magnificent porticos which he built to the capital, or the great basilica Julia which he erected for the improvement of the sittings of the law courts. The art of self-advertisement, in short, Caesar possessed to the highest degree. Even when he had the misfortune to lose near relatives, their funerals served him as a means for providing the people with a splendid show. When his aged Aunt Julia, the widow of Marius, died, he took the opportunity of startling the assembled multitude by parading before them the long-forbidden effigy of the old lady's deceased husband, to the joy of all Democrats. A fragment of Caesar's funeral oration over Julia has been preserved by Suetonius. It is very characteristic as showing that the affectionate nephew knew how to speak one word for his respected aunt and two for himself. On the mother's side, he said, Julia descended from the ancient kings, on the father's from the immortal gods themselves, for her mother and my grandmother Marcia descended from Ancus Martius, the fourth king of Rome, while we of the Julian house trace back our origin to Venus herself. In our family, therefore, we combine the divine right of kings, who are the greatest among men, and the worship of the gods, to whose powers even kings must bow. What could be more flattering to the sovereign people than to see a gentleman of such illustrious descent courting their approval? The mob, it is said, loves a lord. How much more must it love a suitor who was, as he carefully pointed out to them, not merely of noble but of divine descent? 
another funeral oration of this same sort was made by caesar over his second wife cornelia in earlier days we are told only ancient matrons were honoured with a public funeral and a laudation from the rostra he first broke through the custom by celebrating the show for a spouse who had not yet passed her prime this contributed says plutarch to fix him in the affections of the people who sympathized with him and considered him as a man of feeling and one who had his social duties at heart they must have been disappointed when he divorced instead of burying his third wife pompeia after the scandal concerning the mysteries of the bonadea caesar then was from his earliest entrance into politics working for the definite end of achieving greatness but what sort of greatness he can hardly himself have realized certainly he may be excused from holding with mommsen that he had recognized within his breast the promptings of a kingly heart and was determined to be a king that development belongs to a much later date yet there can be no doubt that his aim was always to get to the front every one knows how he wept when he looked upon the statue of alexander the great and muttered that the macedonian had conquered the whole east before reaching the age at which he himself had merely obtained the quaestorship it was a few years later that passing on his journey to spain through a miserable village in the alps he exclaimed to his travelling companions that he would rather be the first man there than the second man in rome but it seems clear that caesar in his early days was set on reaching political greatness rather by the dusty and dirty path through the forum than by the road through the battlefield by which he was ultimately destined to come to the front he was determined to be the first man in rome but till he discovered late in life that he chanced to be a military genius he intended to rise by the aid of the reeking multitude of the Sabura the democratic party had hitherto been led by a dynasty of failures he would provide it with a chief who had none of the weak points of his predecessors he would be a gracchus who should be neither austere nor impracticable a drusus destitute of priggishness a glaucia whose jokes should always be in good taste a saturninus whose riots should always be interesting so as not to end in boring the public opinion of the streets by mere commonplace repetitions of club law and arson all this he became yet he felt when he had achieved this particular form of greatness that there was still something wanting it was unsatisfactory to remember that all his largesses had to come out of the pocket of crassus and that he might at any moment be given some dirty job by the stolid millionaire and be unable to refuse it still more tiresome must it have been to realize as caesar did realize without a doubt that an end might be put to all his games on the day when pompey should be provoked to throw his sword into the balance none knew better the powerlessness of a mob against an army one of the most striking recollections of his boyhood must have been that of the bloody day when sulla's legions cleared the gangs of sulpicius rufus out of the streets and came first of all roman soldiers armed and triumphant to the forum and the capitol there must have been a moment its date we cannot dare to fix when caesar finally came to the conclusion that the domination which he had achieved in the streets would avail him nothing if ever swords were drawn 
when once he had realized the fact his mind must have been turned to the only possible alternative had he within himself the makings of a great general that he had a soldier's courage and readiness he had proved in mytilene in b c seventy nine and in asia in b c seventy four that he could assert a personal ascendancy over his followers he knew well from his experiences during ten years of mob management but a man may be a good fighter and an inspiring leader and yet lack the main qualities of generalship caesar like other young romans of his class had undoubtedly studied the theory of the art of war from the popular greek manuals then in vogue but so had many an incapable optimate who had disgraced himself on the battlefield it yet remained to be seen whether he possessed any real military ability this could only be learnt by experiment the first occasion on which caesar had the opportunity of trying his hand at the game of war upon a considerable scale was when he went to spain as propraetor in b c sixty one this governorship was the turning point in his whole career his contemporaries supposed that it was important to him merely because it gave him the chance of paying off the enormous debts which hung round his neck like a millstone and had made him the tool of crassus this no doubt had some weight in caesar's eyes it is certain that by some wonderful tour de force he wrung vast sums out of spain without earning a specially bad name for rapacity but a roman governor of those days had to emulate the exploits of verres and antonius if he wished to shock the public opinion of his contemporaries there can be no doubt that caesar must have shorn the spaniards close to raise the money that paid off his debts but probably as the irish wit wrote of lord carteret he had a more genteel manner of binding their chains than most of his predecessors a considerable part of the sum too was secured by the selling as slaves of his numerous prisoners of war an obvious method of money-making on which the successful commander could always rely but the financial importance of caesar's spanish governorship was nothing in comparison with its military importance for the first time he found himself at the head of a considerable army he took over two legions and raised a third and able to deal with it as he pleased nor were enemies wanting never since the spanish provinces had been formed had border warfare ceased on their northwestern frontiers the Gallici and cantabrians still maintained their freedom in their hills and many of the northern lusitanians were practically independent though nominally included within the borders of the empire even if caesar had not been wishing to try his fortune as a soldier he would have been compelled to chastise these fierce hillmen for their perpetual raids into the more settled districts but he was only too eager to discover his real possibilities in the military sphere he carried out a long and difficult campaign in the valleys of the lower duro mondego and the mino with complete success showing an untiring watchfulness and a wary skill that must have surprised his soldiery who knew him only as the hero of the roman streets it must have been in this galician and lusitanian campaign of b c sixty one that caesar came to know himself and to recognize that he was capable of the highest things in the field it must have been a stirring moment for it changed the whole of the outlook of his life 
he need no longer make it his loftiest aim to be the king of the Sabura and the hero and model of the young rakes of Rome. He might now aspire to beat Pompey on his own lines. If he could obtain a great military province and raise a large army, he might hope to achieve a more splendid reputation than that of the conqueror of the pirates and of Mithridates. There would be no need to shed futile tears again before the statue of Alexander the Great. He might, after all, make up for the years lost in demagogy and in evil living. At forty-one years of age, it is still not too late to start on the soldier's trade, though there is hardly another case in history, save Oliver Cromwell, of a general who discovered his avocation when so far advanced in middle life. Endowed with a splendid physique, which had not been ruined even by the twenty ill-spent years of his Roman career, Caesar was still wiry, alert, and untiring. Probably the one virtue of his youth, his contempt for the delights of the cup and the platter, now stood him in good stead. He could march and starve with the sturdiest of his own legionaries. There seemed to be no danger that his body would fail him, and his mind was at its best. The readiness and ingenuity which he had always displayed in the tactics of the forum were easily transferred to the tactics of the field. The power of inspiring confidence which had enabled him to discipline even the demoralized city mob served him still better with the simple soldiery. Indeed, it must have been a comparatively easy task to manage the conscripts of the Spanish or the Cisalpine province after managing the unruly and untrustworthy denizens of the Roman slums. We cannot doubt that Caesar returned to Rome in B.C. 60 with one desire before his eyes, that of obtaining first the consulate and then as proconsul a military province of the first class, the Gauls for choice, since there he would both remain comparatively near to Italy and also have a splendid field for operations and a great recruiting ground. It was fortunate for him that the change in his outlook on life which had resulted from his Spanish campaign was not apparent to his contemporaries. To Pompey and Crassus, no less than to Cicero and Cato, he was still the rakish demagogue of the past twenty years. Had Crassus guessed that his late debtor, the manager for many a day of his hirelings, was aspiring to climb to greatness over the pile of his money-bags, had Pompey known that the man who offered to deliver him from the insults of the Senate was intending to supersede him in the position of Rome's greatest general, there would have been no first triumvirate. But the change in Caesar's character and designs was hidden from them. They allied themselves, as they supposed, with a mob manager of genius, who undertook to clear the streets for them and to work the machinery of the Comitia. There was little in Caesar's conduct in B.C. 60-59 to 59 to make them suspect that they were giving themselves a master when they acquiesced in the bargain. He was to secure them what they desired, and they in return were to concede to him the consulship and the Gallic provinces. The combination of Caesar's management and Crassus's money carried all before it, and the consulate was duly secured to the democratic candidate. In older days it would have been a serious drawback that he failed to carry the election of Lucius Lucaeus, the obscure person who ran with him, and that he was saddled with Bibulus, 
the most obstinate of optimates as his colleague but in caesar's year of office it did not matter much whether he had a colleague or not his consulship was a sort of carnival of illegality and mob law which made a fitting close to the whole of his demagogic career he violated every rule of the constitution with cheerful nonchalance that surprised even his own lieutenants he openly displayed armed men in the comitia he not only drove away the partisans of the senatorial party by force that was now the ordinary rule in domestic politics but arrested and hurried off in custody every one who dared to speak against his proposals even the respectable cato himself his crowning act of illegality took place at the passing of his agrarian law when bibulus put up three tribunes to veto it caesar quietly disregarded them and proceeded with his business the optimate consul sprang to his feet and began declaiming to the people that the whole proceedings were null and void and that his colleague was violating the most fundamental laws of the constitution caesar had him seized by his lictors bundled off the rostra and told the attendants to see that no harm happened to him and to turn him loose in some quiet street cato and the three dissentient tribunes were treated in the same unceremonious fashion then caesar bade the proceedings go on and passed his law if ever maestas the open and deliberate commission of high treason took place at rome this was the occasion a magistrate had disregarded the veto of his own colleague and of three tribunes and had finally laid violent hands on their sacrosanct persons and expelled them from the assembly the optimates wondered that the sky did not fall then and there but nothing happened and caesar declared his bill to be law and carried out its provisions bibulus formally summoned the senate next day narrated the indignities that he had suffered and called upon the fathers to support him in open resistance and to declare all his colleagues doings invalid he was met with a mournful silence the days of nausicaa and opimius were over no one offered to arm his clients and go forth to save the state the veterans of pompey and the mob of caesar seemed too formidable so bibulus shut himself up in his house and contented himself with posting a daily placard to the effect that he was observing the heavens and that it was therefore impossible that any legal meeting of the comitia could take place by the letter of the law he was undoubtedly right and every bill that passed during the remainder of the year b c fifty nine was null and void but what was to be done if the bills were not only carried but obeyed the wits of rome called the time the consulship of julius and of caesar in derision of the unfortunate bibulus it would have been more correct to call it not a consulship at all but a fine specimen of tyranny caesar meanwhile went on in his reckless career passing bills good bad and indifferent some of them were excellent administrative measures others such as the ratification of pompey's asiatic acta were eminently proper and justifiable others again were shameless bribes to the mob or the equites the one which struck contemporary opinion as the most objectionable was that which made a plebeian of publius clodius that detestable young man had given caesar good cause of offence by the scandal at the mysteries of the bonadia and had forced him not without reason to divorce his wife 
but the consul bore him no grudge indeed he seems to have regarded him with a sort of parental affection as the destined successor who was about to repeat his own early career of political riot and private debauchery clodius wished to become a plebeian in order to qualify for the tribunate caesar indulged him and proposed himself the lex curiata by which the adoption of the young man into a plebeian family was managed the ceremony was carried out in an irregular not to say a farcical fashion no sanction was procured from the pontifices the legal notice of three nundinae before the meeting of the curies was not given the adopter who undertook to make clodius his son was a lad of nineteen one publius fonteius who was far younger than clodius and unmarried yet he was made to profess his want of issue and the necessity of his adopting a son to continue his race as a matter of fact he married not long after and had many children caesar carried through the scandalous show and left clodius behind him as his agent for the due maintenance of mob law and anarchy during his absence in gaul early in b c fifty eight the moment that his turbulent consulship was over caesar hurried off to take over charge of the gallic provinces and their legions he had secured himself no mere annual governorship but a long term of five years of command such had been the purport of the vatinian law which was drafted on the same lines as the gabinian and manilian laws that had been passed for pompey's benefit nearly ten years before clearly caesar thought that five years would be required to enable him to make his name and frame his army what he was to do when his term ran out we may doubt whether he had as yet determined his spanish command had been a great experiment his gaulish one would be an even greater as yet he cannot have framed any other intention than that of being the greatest man in rome of what sort his predominance was to be he had probably formed no fixed plan all would depend on how affairs went in the land of the celts that caesar went to gaul with a fixed intention of carrying the boundaries of the empire to the rhine and the ocean there is no reason to doubt the existing frontier of the transalpine province was drawn in an illogical and haphazard fashion beyond it lay tribes in various ill-defined relations of vassalship and amity to rome ever since the cimbric campaign of marius the province had been needing and always failing to obtain the hand of a master but even if caesar had arrived with the most pacific intentions he would have been forced to fight before his governorship was six months old there were troubles brewing on the eastern frontier of gaul which were already becoming dangerous not only to the independent tribes but to the transalpine dominions of rome the swabian king ariovistus with a miscellaneous horde of migratory germans compacted from many races had crossed the rhine as the cimbri had crossed it fifty years before and was threatening to overrun all central gaul at the same moment the warlike helvetii were deserting their narrow and mountainous homes in switzerland with the object of conquering for themselves a more spacious and fertile abode in the valley of the rhone no proconsul however slack and indolent could have avoided interference in both these movements to caesar they were an absolute godsend as they provided him with the best possible reasons for enlarging his army and engaging in active hostilities the very moment that he reached his province 
the gaul and german were enemies well known to the roman soldier in marching against them caesar had none of the disadvantages which crassus had suffered when he went forth to meet the unknown tactics of the parthians the gaul indeed was one of the most familiar foes of the state the bands whom caesar fought in b c fifty eight through fifty one were precisely similar to those with whom camillus or marcellus had contended two or three centuries before their gallant but unstable hordes more than men at the first onslaught less than women after a severe repulse were precisely the sort of troops against whom the steady and untiring legion was most effective the only really dangerous part of their hosts was the cavalry formed of the chiefs and their sworn henchmen who were far superior to any mounted troops of whom caesar could dispose when first he went to gaul to withstand them he had to enlist friendlies of their own nationality and spanish mercenaries a little later germans also for the latter were found to be superior to the gauls themselves in the cavalry arm as to the tribal levies of infantry they were difficult to check at their first rush but when it was spent the individual swordsman with his immense claymore and big shield was not fit to cope either in a single-handed fencing-match or in a large body with the well-trained legionary the rank and file understood this as well as caesar himself and their knowledge of the fact was no mean help to their general with the germans it was at first otherwise the roman army remembered arausio quite as well as it remembered vercelli and had an exaggerated respect for the giants of the northern forests and their indomitable pluck at the first encounter with ariovistus caesar had many anxious moments there was a doubt whether the legions could be trusted to do their best their general acknowledges that when he marched against the germans many of his officers showed signs of malingering and the rank and file began to make their wills as if they were going forward to certain death it required a wonderful mixture of tact and firmness on the part of caesar to induce his troops to make their first attack on ariovistus but when the feat was accomplished the legionary discovered that the teuton was if bigger and fiercer yet even more undisciplined and clumsy than the celt and far worse armed the german tribes even a century later had hardly got to the stage of wearing armour or forming an orderly battle array yet both gaul and german were enemies not to be despised and it was no ordinary general who could have set out with a light heart for the deliberate purpose of attacking them in order to win a great military reputation at their expense nothing but an ever-pressing unconquerable ambition could have driven caesar to the taking up of such a formidable task End of section twenty six